Well, hello. Welcome to Vaughn Forest. It's great to see so many of you here on our campus. I'm going to welcome everybody joining us online. If we haven't had a chance to meet, my name's Adam, one of the pastors here. I am so glad you're here. I am so glad to be here. If I haven't told you lately, let me tell you, I love you, all right? I absolutely love getting to be up here with y'all every single week and seeing y'all up here on the campus during the week and seeing you out in the community during the week. And uh, this is a really fun season in the life of our church. Now, if you're just jumping in today for the first time, you're in, you're in for a, a good news. We just kicked this series off last week. So you haven't missed a whole lot so far. We're taking five weeks and we're talking about worship. So last Sunday, we talked about this question. We started the series with a question and that question was this, where is your worship? We talked about how all of us are worshiping something and we did a little bit of a diagnosis to see if we could kind of figure out, is our worship actually directed towards God? And if not, what are some steps that we can take about that? And I said last week that more so than any other series I can remember in recent memory. This really is one sermon preached over five weeks. And so if you miss any of the weeks, I want to encourage you to go back and at least listen to or perhaps watch the sermon because the five-week series on worship, they really build upon one another. So if you missed last week, let me encourage you this week to go back and watch that, vaughnforest.com, vaughnforest on our YouTube channel. And then if you prefer just to listen to the sermon audio, the best way to do that is by subscribing to the Vaughn Forest sermon audio podcast, however you choose to get your podcast, and it'll be waiting for you. Um, Maybe while you're driving around, you can listen. Because when you're driving around, we don't want you to watch the service. We want you to listen to the service, okay? So we offer that for you as well. So last week, where is your worship? Week two, let me tell you the title of today's message. We're going to talk about worship's starting point. And it probably seems like that should have been week one. So last week was really kind of a precursor to really the starting point of worship, what we're going to talk about today. So if you have a Bible, Hebrews chapter 13, if you don't have a Bible, we'll put the verses up here on the screen for you. And I'm super fired up because we're going to do an entire message on two verses. We're going to dig into these two verses because they have a lot to say to us about worship's starting point. Now I'm going to spend a little bit of time in Hebrews chapter 9 as well, but we're going to mostly be in Hebrews 13 in just these two Verses. So let me say a word about Hebrews, since we're going to spend all of our time together today in, in Hebrews. Maybe you're new to the Bible. Hebrews is a really long book in the New Testament. It's towards the end of the New Testament, and it's unique for a couple of reasons. The first reason it's unique is we don't know who wrote it, and this is unique to the New Testament. One of the things that liberal scholars love to do when they attack the New Testament and they attack the authenticity of the New Testament is they say that we've made up authorship. That, that you can't really prove historically that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, that Paul wrote his letters, Peter wrote his letters, James wrote his letters. But we actually can, that there's lots of evidence to prove that we know authorship. And then a great counterpoint to make is we will even concede when we don't have the evidence that gives us certainty of authorship. Hebrews is that example. Quite frankly, there's just not enough evidence for us to know with the same level of certainty that we know with other books historically who actually wrote it. So as you can imagine, over 2,000 years of church history, there have been a number of different theories as to who wrote the book of Hebrews. And ultimately, we won't know until we get to heaven one day, but I'll share my theory with you, even though you didn't ask, right? So I'm going to teach from Hebrews. I figured I'll just go ahead and put all my cards out and let you know what I think. 
Now, my perspective is shaped primarily by Dr. Elmer Towns. He was a mentor of mine, continues to be a mentor of mine. I worked for him over 20 years ago at Liberty University while I was in seminary. And he preached here last year. Last October, he came and preached and he turned 90 two weeks ago and he still has more energy than me, okay? So Dr. Towns is a blessing, he is a gift. And he shared with me his perspective and why he'd reached that conclusion. And then I've kind of studied this, you know, kind of on the side over the years. It's something I'm intrigued by. So I've kind of reached the same conclusion. So again, you don't have to share this opinion, but I figured we're going to be in the book. So I'll tell you what I think. I think that Luke wrote Hebrews, but I think that it's Paul's content. So when, when you read through Hebrews, you see a lot of the same themes that pop up in some of Paul's other letters but it's the grammatical structure from Luke and Acts in the original Greek. So what's happening there? Dr. Towns said that from Acts, we know that Paul and Luke traveled together. So what Dr. Towns is saying is that while Paul was preaching, Luke's taking good notes, and that eventually he compiles the content of these messages into what we now know as Hebrews. Again, we can't prove this, but I think it's a pretty good Theory. And one of the things you're going to see in Hebrews is there's this theme that comes up over and over again where we see how the Old Testament was pointing us to Jesus. So, for example, if you're a new Christian, someone may say, you know, here's a Bible. Start reading it. And you may start in the beginning. In Genesis and Exodus, there's a lot of fun things happening. I mean, it kind of moves and it's quick and it's exciting. And then you get to Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. It's no less God's word. It's no less inerrant. But it's a little more difficult to apply to our lives because there's a lot of Old Testament laws that aren't really pertinent to our lives today. So perhaps if you're a new Christian, you know, get, get real familiar with Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. New Testament, Jesus, the book of Acts tells us our story. This is our family history, how the church got started. And then the book of Hebrews, might I suggest, is a great way to understand and interpret the Old Testament in light of the finished work of Jesus Christ. That's why I like Hebrews so much. So when you read through Hebrews, the theme is Jesus is better than. Now fill in the blank. So Jesus is better than the Old Testament sacrificial system. Jesus is better than the Old Testament high priest. Jesus is better than angels. Jesus is better than. So what you ultimately see is all of the Old Testament was actually pointing us to Jesus. And everything is ultimately fulfilled in and through the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so Hebrews has so much to offer in so many different areas. And I wanted us to go there for worship because there's two little verses tucked away in Hebrews chapter 13 that really unpack for us in great detail what it means to worship, okay? So let me read these two verses, and I'm going to tell you how we're going to kind of move through this message today. Again, Hebrews 13, 15, and 16. Through him then, who's him? Jesus. So through Jesus then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So here we see, while we're talking about this with worship, offer up a sacrifice of praise to God, that is the fruit of lips praising his name. And do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So we're going to spend the majority of our time in verse 15. And what I want to do is I want to give you four key phrases from verse 15. Now, as you look at these phrases, it would be a good time to go ahead and grab your message notes, pull those out of your bulletin. If you're joining us online, you can access them right here at vaughnforest.com. And what we're going to do is we're going to work our way through this verse and let these key phrases anchor us. And then I'm going to give you some principles to jot down as we work our way through this verse. But I want you to see these four phrases and perhaps maybe even jot them down in the margin somewhere. Because the grammatical structure of the verse is different in English 
as opposed to its original language was written in Greek. And this isn't, I mean, this is not uncommon. If you took Spanish in high school or French in high school or Korean in high school, you know that different languages structure sentences differently based on their rules of grammar. So these four phrases, to God, sacrifice of praise through him then, and let us continually offer up as we work our way through them and we really dissect what these phrases mean, what we begin to see is how we can recognize worship's starting point and then respond accordingly, okay? So we're gonna spend a lot of time in one verse today. And I think that by the end of our time together, you're gonna see the power of doing that. So let's go back to the verse. And what I'm doing each time we focus on a phrase is I'm putting that phrase in all caps to kind of draw some attention to it. So to God was our first phrase. So again, let's reread the verse focusing on this phrase. Through him then, through Jesus then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. And this phrase gives us worship starting points. If you're taking notes, you can jot that down. It's our first principle for today, that worship starting point is God. It is offered to God. You may think, I didn't need to come to church for you to tell me that worship's starting point is God. That sounds pretty obvious, and it is obvious. What's easy to miss, however, is so many times we miss that. We can very easily, I don't think that we do this intentionally, but we can very easily actually make ourselves the starting point of worship. Not in the sense that we worship ourselves, in the sense that what's going on in our lives dictates whether or not we worship. We don't start with an acknowledgement of God and let that determine our worship. Oftentimes, we let what's going on in our lives determine our worship. So if things are going well, man, we are quick to worship God. But when things aren't going so well, that's not really something we feel like doing. I mean, if God is answering all of our prayers the way that we want him to, absolutely. Let's offer praises to God. But when, what, what happens when it seems like God is silent and we can't really figure out what he's up to? Well, that's not often the first thought. I'm going to keep worshiping God Anyway, but see, once we recognize that the starting point of worship is actually God, we we then rightly acknowledge it really doesn't have anything to do with what's going on in my life. What's going on in my life has nothing to do with whether or not God is worthy of my worship. Why? Because worship's starting point is God. But let's unpack that a little further. Let me give you the second principle I want you to jot down, tied to this. Worship is our response to God for who he is, what he has done, and what he will continue to do. To do Now, we're going to leave this up here for a minute because I got you to write down four phrases. I know, a lot of writing today. Okay, I hope your pen's working, okay? Worship is our response. We talked about that last week. That foundationally, it's a response. That there's something else out there. And it's actually dictating my emotions, my affections, where I spend my time, where I spend my money, how I orient my life. So I am responding to something else. Obviously, for us, we think that response should be to God. Well, why is that? Well, three phrases give us clarity. First of all, it's our response to God for who he is. You see, church, God is worthy of our worship, period. There's no clarifying phrase. There's no as long as phrase. No, no. God is worthy of our worship simply for who he is. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. God is omniscient. God is infinite, God can't be contained by time or space. God is so unlike us, and that's good news. See, if God's like us, why should we worship him? We're flawed. We have lots of issues. You say, I don't think I have that many issues. I'll talk to your spouse afterwards. They will tell me the truth, okay? You got issues. Me too. Welcome to the club, all right? God didn't have any issues. He's not like us. Therefore, we worship him 
for who he is. But guess what? We can worship him for what he's done. What has he done? Hey, let me give you some good news. He created you in his image. He gave you the gift of life. He knit you together in your mother's womb. He fearfully and wonderfully made you. You are not a mistake. God has you here for a reason. God has a purpose to your life. You say, I don't really know if God's done anything for me lately. Can I tell you what God did for you? He did you. So you worship him. What else has God done? He created everything. God created everything from nothing. What does that mean? He didn't have any Legos. He didn't have any Legos. He didn't have any stacks of wood. He didn't need materials. That God spoke creation into existence. That there was nothing. And then all of a sudden, there was everything. Why? Because God spoke. And when God said, don't miss this, let there be light, that's still happening. That command is still being obeyed. Our science is doing the best we can to catch up with it. There's another galaxy over there. There's another galaxy over there. They're millions of light years away. Why? God spoke light into existence. You can see mountains and you can see oceans. You can stream rivers and streams and fields and you can marvel at what God has done. What else has God done? He enacted an incredible plan of rescue and redemption through salvation for you. See, God wasn't gonna let Adam and Eve sin, ruin it for everybody. He still made us in his image and he wasn't gonna let sin get in the way of having a relationship with you. So he wasn't passive. No, no, he came after you and he did it in the most remarkable way. He sent his son Jesus to earth to become one of us, to go willingly to the cross, to pay that price for you and die on the cross and then defeat death through the resurrection so that you can be reconciled to God. You can have a relationship with God, not because of anything that you've done, but because of what Jesus did. God did that for you. And then when you get to a place in your life and you recognize, wait a second, I can't get to God unless I go through someone else. His name's Jesus. He said, I'm the way, the truth, and the life. And you ask him to come into your life and save you. You're born again, as John chapter three says. You can now have a relationship with God. God did that for you. He's worthy of your worship. And then here's where it gets really fun. We can worship God for what we believe by faith. He will continue to do. See, here's the amazing thing about God. He doesn't just sit back with his arms crossed and hope you and just wish you the best. Say, go ahead, do this thing called life. I'll see you when you get to heaven. That is not the God we serve. He, in, he involves himself in the details of the lives of his people. What an amazing God. See, every other belief system, every other world religion, every other whatever you want to call it, doesn't have a personal God, doesn't have a God who would, who would come down to us, and yet our God says, I, I care about what's going on in your life. I'm going to involve myself. This is why you pray. You cry out to God. You talk to God about what's going on in your life. You ask God to act on your behalf. You say, God, I got this I got this sea in front of me. Can you part it for me? God says, I've done it before. I'll do it again. You come to God. He said, there's this mountain in my way. God, I need you to help me go around it, through it, or under it. God says, let's go. See, God doesn't just sit back. So what we as the people of God can do is continue to call on him. We believe he will move on our behalf. See, maybe God's not up to something in your life right now. You, you, you can't really see what God's up to. This is why it's so important to remember the faithfulness of the past the promises of God. See, these are the reasons why we worship God. It is our response to who he is, what he has done, what he will continue to do, all right? So let's go back to our verse. Let's kind of see the next key phrase we wanna focus on. Through him then, all caps, let's continually offer up, here we go, sacrifice of praise to God. So I got two phrases in all caps. So we're gonna offer up this 
sacrifice of praise to God, but it's through Jesus then. And this word then is carrying with it this understanding that it's because of something that Jesus has done that we can now offer continually this sacrifice of praise. It's carrying with it the connotation that this hasn't always been the case. And we know from God's word that's true. That Jesus did something, now we can do this. But to understand the weight of the phrasing of this verse, an understanding about what it was like before Jesus did this is helpful. Okay, so let's jot this down. Principle number three from our passage today. That before Jesus' sacrifice, actually doing what this verse tells us to do, which was offer, offering a sacrifice of praise, it was work. And you might even want to write, was a lot of work a whole bunch of work. The whole Old Testament is a lot of different steps and a lot of work that someone had to do before they could actually offer a sacrifice of praise to God. And so many times, church, we take for granted where we are on the timeline of God's great redemptive history. What do I mean by that? Well, you live when you live. This is the only time we know to live. It's the only time we've ever lived. But you have to recognize that for centuries, there were people who, who were trying to worship God the best way they knew how. Worshiping God with the available means to worship God at that point in God's timeline. We don't live at that point in the timeline. We live in a different point in the timeline. And, and if we could invent a time machine, man, somebody, well, I, we need like somebody from Generation Z to get on that, right? Somebody invent a time machine. I want Back to the Future to be real, okay? But if we could invent one of those and go back in time and go, you're not gonna believe this. Here's some things we get to do now when it pertains to worship. They would look at us and say, you've got to be kidding me. Why? Because for them, it was an immense amount of work. So let me take you to Hebrews chapter 9, and it's going to paint a picture for us of what this work looked like. Hebrews 9. Now, even the first covenant, now we're talking about Old Testament, Old Covenant, had regulations for what? Divine worship, earthly sanctuary. For a tabernacle was equipped. When you see the word tabernacle, I need you to think a really large tent, This has its origins when Moses led the Hebrew people out of Egypt and they're in the wilderness and God gives them commands on how to construct a tabernacle. This is where the presence of God was going to dwell, Ark of the Covenant. When we get to King Solomon, David's son, David, same guy that killed Goliath, has a son named Solomon. He builds a temple and this temple is everything that the Old Testament was kind of moving towards. When Jesus shows up, he's not doing ministry in Solomon's temple. That actually got destroyed. The temple had to be rebuilt towards the end of the Old Testament. And it's kind of a shadow of what the first temple was. We're, we're going before all of that back to this tabernacle. It, it has mobility. It can be set up as a tent. It can be moved around. It can be set up somewhere else. So a tabernacle was equipped. The outer sanctuary in which there were, there were lampstands, table and the sacred bread. This is called the holy place. We're kind of getting a description of this from the Old Testament. Behind the second veil, there was a tabernacle, which is called the most holy place, having a golden altar of incense and the Ark of the Covenant covered on all sides with gold in which was a golden jar holding the manna. And there were a few other things as well. Aaron's staff, which budded in the tablet of the covenant. So manna, how God fed the people in the wilderness, they put some of it in a jar. The, the tablets that God wrote his law on, as well as Aaron's staff, which had budded. All of these things are there in the Holy of Holies. 
And above it were the cherubim of glory overshadowing the atoning cover. But about these things, we cannot now speak in detail. Why? Because we're talking about a tabernacle from centuries ago. We've already had one temple constructed and then another temple constructed by the time this is being written in the first century. So what was the tabernacle like? I got a little diagram here. It's not meant to show you kind of like the tent. It's just more of a layout of how all of this looked. And this diagram is an illustration of the passage we just read. So we see there's the court, there's the holy place, there's the holy of holies. There's the table of the presence, the seven-branch seven lampstand, the altar of incense, the altar of burnt offering. And it says entrance. And that's a little deceiving because not everybody could enter into each stage of this tabernacle setting. It, it wasn't a place that just anybody could go. In fact, only the priest could come here and only the high priest could enter into the Holy of Holies where the Ark of the Covenant was. And that only happened once a year. We know that because of the way the passage continues. So let's go back to that in Hebrews chapter nine. We'll pick it back up in verse six. Now, when these things have been so prepared, the priests are continually entering the outer tabernacle, performing the divine worship. But into the second, only the high priest enters once a year not without taking blood, which he offers for himself and for the sins of the people committed in ignorance. Can I just give you a really quick word of a very long passage I just read for you? Work, work. That is a process. There's a lot of things that have to happen before someone can have a sacrifice of praise that takes place. And it's important for us to recognize what it was like then so that we can understand what Jesus' final, finished, completed work actually accomplished for us now. So let's go back to the verse and let's draw some more attention to it. So through him then, now we're gonna talk about Jesus, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So jot this down as we see the significance of what Jesus did. Jesus' sacrifice made it possible for you to worship God in spirit and truth through your sacrifice of praise. Now you're jotting that down like, okay, we're, we're four through. I think we've got seven, so maybe we can you know, kind of move this along faster. You know, we got things we need to do this afternoon. Please don't miss what you just wrote down. That for most of human history, again, if we could hop on our back to the future time machine, and go back and tell someone this, they would give us a very puzzled look. Say, no, 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 that's not how it works. Like, you can't offer your own sacrifice of praise. The priests have to do that. The, the high priest goes into the Holy of Holies. Like, th this, is, this is not an option for you. This isn't something that you're able to do. But because of what Jesus did through him then, it is now possible for you to offer your worship in spirit and truth. See, someone who's not a Christ follower can sing out to God. And I think that matters because that's often the way that God begins to bring about conviction in one's heart, pointing out their need for a savior. But only the person who has been born again can approach God's throne and worship in spirit and truth. It's only through what Jesus did for you that you actually now can worship the God who created you. It's only because of what Jesus did for you that you can now offer up your sacrifice of praise. Now, good, let's go back to Hebrews chapter nine where we see clarity to this with what Jesus did for us. Verse 11, but when, Je when Jesus Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things having come. So you don't need a high priest anymore. Jesus came as your high priest. He entered through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, not made by hands, that is, not of this creation, but what? 
and not through the blood of goats and calves, but what? Through his own blood. He entered the holy place once for all time, having obtained eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the ashes of a heifer sprinkling those who have been defiled sanctify for the cleansing of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works to serve the living God. See, those sacrifices that were made, they served as a temporary sacrifice, but but there was not a, a permanent change that could occur through temporary sacrifices. It was only when Jesus offered himself as the sacrifice that you could ultimately be cleansed through the blood of Jesus Christ, therefore making it possible for you to offer your sacrifice to God. Incredible. All right, so let's go back to our verse and and focus on the next phrase. Through him then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Now, what's this? There's an apostrophe S. So let's means let us. So through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. So what's the next principle we see from this verse? Because of Jesus, sacrifices of praise can now be continual rather than temporary and from all of us rather than from one person on our behalf. I mean, at some point, somebody should just spike a hymnal right about now because that should fire you up, okay? Wait, we ain't got any hymnals. You can spike your pen, all right? You do that, whatever you need to do. This is unheard of. Again, back in, back in time. Hey, guess what? It can be continual praise rather than temporary praise. And here's the best part. We all get to do it. We all get to do it. We don't have to let that guy go do it for us. We don't have to let that guy who's from that family with that pedigree, who was predetermined before he was born, he gets to do that. And the rest of us, we don't have access to offer up our sacrifice of praise. No, we all get to do it now. We don't, again, we we take that for granted because of where we are on the timeline of God's great redemptive plan and all of human history. But see, this is such a great reminder. Jesus's death on the cross was for everyone. It wasn't just for the elite. It wasn't just for those who had the right pedigree. It wasn't just for those who grew up in church. It wasn't just for those who understand everything. No, no, God, God, God wants all of his people who he's created in his image to worship him. And that can only happen through Jesus Christ. And so guess what? We all get to do it. We don't have to let one person do that on our behalf. You don't need a priest. You don't need a pastor. You don't need a Sunday school teacher. You don't even need your grandparents. You can offer your praise to God continually. Because of what Jesus did for you, we actually now get to do this together. And guess what? When we get to heaven, we're gonna do it together for all of eternity with all of God's people. Remarkable, okay? So let's go back to our verse. Let's see kind of the the last little phrase I wanna focus on from this verse. Through him then, let's continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips praising his name. So jot this down. We're gonna have some fun with this as you jot it down. We celebrate this. What's this? For Pete's sake, everything I'm talking about today, okay? We celebrate this not by agreeing with it, but by expressing it with our words. What does the verse say? It's the fruit of our lips. It's the praise. Now, let me kind of step on your toes here for a little bit, all right? For many of you, the way you celebrate this truth is you just simply agree with it. You're like, yep, sounds good, pastor. You might even throw in an amen if you're feeling really spiritual, okay? Amen, right? You might do that. But on the whole, it's easy 
kind of in the American church, we don't really face a whole lot of hardship compared to our brothers and sisters in other places of the world. We're kind of like, yeah. Grateful for Hebrews 13. This is awesome. Yep, sacrifice of praise. So glad that can happen. But that's not what the passage says, does it? It says that the way we offer up our sacrifice of praise is through the fruit of our lips. And the sacrifice of praise, both in the Old Testament and the New Testament, is tied directly, don't miss this, to you singing. Say, well, pastor, I like to express it with my words when I talk. We'll get to that point in a second. That's point number seven. We'll get there in just a second. But for point number six, we're going to talk about singing. Because for some of y'all, you need to be challenged a little bit to begin to express your praise through your words by singing. And it's all over Scripture. See, when we sing together with God's people, it's not like we're just doing that for two or three songs until somebody can get out here and talk, and then we got to do it again. I wish he'd let us go after he preaches, but they bring the band back out, and we have to sing again. No, it's like, what are we doing here? We're doing this because it's what we're commanded to do. It's a sacrifice of praise through the fruit of our lips. And see, here's the thing. Some of y'all can't sing worth a lick, which is why you don't sing. That's the point. It takes great humility to sing when you can't sing. Now, our worship team, they can sing. God humbles them in other ways. Don't you worry about them, okay? He'll take care of them in another way. I don't like the fact that they can sing and I can't because here's the thing. When I sing to myself, I sound just like them. I really do, right? And then Morgan and my boys are like, you don't, Dad, you don't. And then they're kind with me, okay? And so you can't sing either. And we think, well, because I can't sing, I'm not gonna sing. That's the point. It takes humility to offer a sacrifice of praise by singing when you can't sing. To sing so loud that people three rows in front of you are turning around going, do they not know they can't sing, right? You gotta have that level of just like, I don't care going on. That's what it means to have a sacrifice of praise. Now here's where this matters. See, if enough of us that can't sing, sing loud, it somehow starts to sound good. Have you noticed that, right? So if all of us who can't sing, sing really, really loud together, it sounds good. And here's what's remarkable about God, our Heavenly Father. He actually wants that. He wants that. He wants you to sing to him. Some of you are like, you know, I hear you, but man, you know, most of the songs we sing, I just don't really like. We have no problem with that. That doesn't bother us one bit. They're not for you. Could care less if you like the songs you sing. In fact, it takes greater levels of humility to sing out praises to God for a song that you just don't really like because it's not about you. It's not about you. And we miss it. Isn't it interesting how selective we can be with the commands of God's word? (laughs) Things that make sense? Oh, yeah, I'm on for that. Things that kind of rub us the wrong way? Nah, not not so good with that. Things that don't kind of fit? Come on. It's in there. It's the fruit of your lips singing praise to him. Why? Because of who he is, because of what he's done, and because of what we believe he will continue to do, that God inhabits the praises of his people, that God desires to hear you sing to him, your creator. Remarkable, okay? Let's go back to the the last verse for today. Do not neglect doing good and sharing, for with such sacrifices, God is pleased. So what's point number seven? When the actions of our lives matches the praises of our lips, God is pleased. Of course, how you live matters. Of course, how you live matters. That that we don't come in here collectively and and sing really loud, sincerely from our heart to God and and then leave and just live however we want. No, of course not. 
that God is pleased when the actions of our lives match up with the praises of our lips. He desires both. And so many times, it's when we actually praise him through song that he will begin to show us, hey, you're out of alignment. I know what God does for me. There's so many times, church, when I'm worshiping with my church family, and I haven't gotten two verses in, and, and God's beginning to convict me of something in my life that is not matching up with the words that I'm singing to him as my father. And when that happens, I've got a choice. I can dig in my hills and, and, and blame my kids or blame my wife or blame someone else and go, that's if you only, or I can just simply do what we talked about last week, which is confess. Confess just means agree. Absolutely, God. That area of my life is not in alignment with what I am singing to you right now. And I want to confess that and rejoice that Jesus paid the price on the cross for that. And I want to worship you in spirit and truth. See, when we offer up the sacrifice of praise to our lips, and then we, we, we live that out with the actions of our lives. Can I tell you, church, that God's pleased? Worship is all of life, but it's also a big deal to our Heavenly Father that we offer up a sacrifice of praise through our lips, through our singing. And I want you to see that for centuries, the amount of work that it took for that to happen. And we take for granted that we can do that at all times. And so we're going to do that. We're going to always do that. I can always promise you at Vaughn Forest Church that we will sing out to our God and we will study his word. So we're going to conclude our time together today by singing out to our God and praising him for what he's done. So as our worship band comes out to lead us in this time of response, would you bow your head with me together as we pray? And so God, as we come to you right now, we want to declare that worship is about you, that worship is our response to you. God, we worship you for who you are. God, we worship you for what you've done. God, we worship you because we claim by faith that you will continue to involve yourselves in the lives of your people. God, for many of us, we confess just kind of our laziness when it comes to our worship. God, we, we confess how much we've taken it for granted where we are on this great timeline of your history of redemption that we actually now, because of what Jesus did for us, can freely offer up a sacrifice of praise, that it can be continual, that we don't have to have someone do that for us. God, for many of us, that requires some humility. We'd much rather let the worship team sing in our place. We'd much rather let other people who like the songs that are being sung sing in our place. But God, maybe for these next few moments, you could remind us in our hearts that you desire our praise, that you desire our worship, that you inhabit the praises of your people. And so God, as we enter into this time of worship, we offer it to you as a sacrifice of praise. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name, amen. Hey, would you stand as we respond together in worship this morning?